ಓಂ ಜ್ಞಾನತ್ಮಾನಂಜನ ಸಲಕಾಯ ಚಕ್ಷುರುಮಲಿತೀಗುರುಭೂಜೋಕನಕಾವದು ಸಂಕೀರ್ತನಾಯಕಮಲಾಯಕ್ಷೋ ವಿಶ್ವಂಬರೋಧಾರ್ಮಪಾಲೋಂದೇಶ್ರೀಕೃಷ್ಣಚೈತನ್ಯಾನಂದಸೋದಿತೋದಾಯುಷ್ಪವ
not uh, something that, let's say, conforms entirely to, to revelation. And then we have yoga, darshan, yoga philosophy, again, it's separate from Vedanta. So when we're speaking of Vedanta, then I'm speaking of bhakti also. Bhakti and yoga is, uh, as I said, a different discipline, a different sadhana, different practice, and different goal. Um, but there are many similarities. And here in the Gita, you may wonder then if it is a text on Vedanta and Bhakti, and it is because it's spoken by Bhagwan. Bhagwan means Krishna here. It means um, the Godhead with uh, personality, with with uh, qualities and form and lila, lilamaya. And the path that corresponds with Bhagwan is bhakti. In yoga darshan, in yoga sadhana, then the the object of the yogi is not Bhagwan but Paramatma. Paramatma, the form of the Lord in the heart, not outside playing a flute, dancing, and uh, herding cows, and all these things that are difficult, a little difficult to understand, even for the yogi sometimes. So the sadhana is, is different, and the sadhya is a little different. Not that paramatma isn't if, isn't transcendental, transcendent, and to um, have eternal passive amor or love of the paramatma is not perfection. It is, but there are different kinds of perfection, different types of enlightenment, different in the sense that they afford us different degrees of intimacy with the with the subject, with the absolute. And some may prefer less intimacy and some may prefer more intimacy. That's the reason there are different paths, one of the reasons, and why people choose them. Even within bhakti we find this. So to say this from the bhakti perspective about paths that aren't particularly bhakti is not a sectarian statement. Even within bhakti we say the same thing. Some devotees like Ram, some like Krishna. A certain amount of intimacy maybe is afforded through bhakti with Ram and another degree of intimacy with Krishna. And within Krishna bhakti, then, there are different degrees of intimacy that is afforded as a result of the particular course or path uh, taste within bhakti that one one gravitates to. So gradation everywhere in transcendence shades, but these these differences, they do not compromise the basic unity or oneness of what it means to be enlightened. In, in, in negative language, then enlightenment is the removal of the uh, karmic implications and the identity that arises from that karmic implication. So, I guess the question is, it could be, why then in the book about bhakti, the Vedanta Darshan of the Gita and bhakti, 
is there a chapter about yoga, Ashtanga yoga? And the reason is because, one reason is because the bhakti discipline that is the primary uh, subject of the Gita is talked about directly and indirectly. So I can talk about what it is and I can talk about what it isn't also for the sake of shedding light on what it is in an indirect fashion. So the sacred texts often work in this way, anbayad vitirekapyam, directly and indirectly. Another reason, however, that it's here is because if one is to be successful in, in yoga and achieve paramatma sayuja or, or in the optimum some type of shantarasa, passive adoration of the absolute in, in eternity, the kind of the beatific uh, vision, to use a Catholic uh, terminology. And to be successful in that execution of bhakti, of, of yoga, some bhakti must be there. This is the idea. So, Krishna includes the path of yoga, but with this uh, caveat, he says, because yoga is, is very sophisticated, science of of um, harnessing our psychic physical and psychic dimensions of self in such a way that the actual self that is not a product of our physical and psychic dimensions will come to the to the surface very sophisticated method Krishna has begun this chapter by telling us that as much as yoga is about sitting and being still is also, at least for the beginners, about how we move. He teaches us in the beginning that we should move, we must move and act in a particular way if we are to be able to sit at all. So he instructs us about this very spirit of yoga that without which going through the practices will uh, not produce a desirable result. That spirit is a self-sacrificing spirit. So he speaks about acting in such a way that one uh, learns to move in the world very differently than we ordinarily do. We move in the world because there's a carrot at the end of the stick so to speak, that's being waved in front of us. There's a fruit of the work that we do that we're chasing after, which doesn't enable, enable us because of that fruit-chasing, carrot-chasing, future-projecting, if you will, of the mind to live, as they say, in the moment and find all that there is to be had in the, in the present. The future is, is in the present. The past is also in the present. So we are, what's fueling our actions in material life is this fruit, this idea of, of acquiring something, that there's always, that, it's, that there's an appetizer that's being offered continually in material life, but the full meal never comes. And if you eat appetizers for too long, then you get indigestion only, so it's problematic. So one becomes thoughtful based on just being a little introspective about the nature of my experience, then one, he or she can understand that this fruit chasing, this working, 
with attachment to the results of the work, which, which means with a view to enjoy them for myself, that, that, that will satisfy me is a folly. So one learns to act in such a way that one becomes detached from the fruit of the work. So he, say, he, 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 he says in the beginning, one has to learn to move in this way if one is going to sit. So how we move will determine our capacity to sit. And when we, in other words, if we effectively learn to move in the world without attachment to the results of our activity, other than obviously we need some results to maintain ourselves in a basic way, but that energy derived then from our work for maintaining ourselves should be used for a purpose other than extending our false sense of self and continuing to chase after the fruit or the, or the carrot, but to uh, to live in the in the present and uh, and to um, and to search ourself out within our. Fruit-chasing life is a very external orientation. Through the medium of the senses, we're oriented towards the objects of the senses and chasing after them. They're always changing and transforming, so it's no wonder that we don't have solid ground, so to speak, to, to stand on. We're looking for some stability, but but the goalpost is always moving. It's problematic, so... So to learn this lesson and then begin to look within for peace and stability and security and uh, and uh, happiness that, uh, that, that, that happiness that is enduring and so forth, this is the yogic idea. So how, how we move will determine the extent to which we can sit. And when we become effectively begin to move away from chasing the fruits of our work, which is most effectively done by learning to offer the fruits to identifying the actual proprietor. It's a folly to to possess because nothing really belongs to us, even if it appears to for a short period of time. Time tells us otherwise. And whatever we possess by the influence of time will eventually become another's possession. Uh, so what is the problem then? The problem is that we are chasing, we are possessed with possessing, with things. It is said that the best things in life are not things. And the extent to which you can possess them in the first place is is questionable. But, But one of the primary reason that we are chasing things is because they look, from our material vantage point, as if we could own them. Things look out of control, so it looks like we have to control the situation. But that's our particular vantage point. Actually, there is a proprietor to all things. And through the hand of time, so to speak, that doesn't allow us to keep anything for very long, not even our sense of material self, Finnish, American, Italian, Indian, Polish, whatever may be, Swedish, whatever may be the case. These are moments only that we cling to. However tightly you cling, you cannot hang on there. 
that will be taken away. There's a lesson in all of this. The sun is rising and setting every day. What do we learn from it? What could speak louder to us than the sun? Ayur Harati, by Pumsam, Uddhanastanti, and so Bhagavad says. One who with knowledge looks and sees the rising of the setting of the sun, he sees, oh, everything is being taken away. All my clinging is futile. I'm clinging to control. But I should let it go and let go of the clinging. And so one of the easiest ways to let go of that kind of clinging and the false sense of proprietorship, ownership and possession is what? If you if you see um, well, you know, I don't know. In times gone by, it w- if a young man would see a young lady and think that he could have her for himself, then um, but he got close and he saw that she had a ring on her finger, then he would back off because forgive me, but this is you know people thought differently in the past because she belonged to someone <laughs> else. I realize she belongs to herself, in a sense, too. We all belong to someone else, actually. But <laughs> that's another thing. So, because the, uh, the young man would understand the, the proprietorship, that the, uh, the object, as he was seeing it, belonged to someone else, and he would back off. And she would probably do the same, I suppose, if she saw a ring on his finger in those days. So, my point is simply this, as bad as the analogy may sound, that if we... Knowledge of proprietorship of the real owner of something diminishes automatically in any honest person the tendency to enjoy it for themselves. So Bhakti seeks to bring into the picture the proprietor. And if we learn to act in such a way by offering the fruits of our work beyond what's necessary to sustain ourselves, and that will be a little different for different people according to their psychology. Everyone needs a little bit of material upkeep, and some need more than others. Some people are more simple, and some people are more complex, and uh, and, and so on. But 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 we don't need that much. <laughs> and the balance of the, if we are possessed of working, if we have desires that make it appear desirable to interact with the world of things that are here today and gone tomorrow, and even knowing that they are, but still we're possessed of some desire to interact with them due to our long conditioning. When we start to move away from them by moving away from enjoying the result for ourselves, we may still like the interaction so that we interact and do things, interact with the world, but we take from our interactions only what's necessary to sustain ourselves within reason and the balance of the fruits, then we offer them to the proprietor for printing the Bhagavad Gita, for example, or going to the retreat uh, and uh, keeping the company of saintly people and so on and so forth. This becomes our life then. And sadhana, spiritual practice, that's a lifestyle. It's not an add-on. That's a lifestyle. If you want to be successful in that, that is a lifestyle. And, you, and this is one of the main points of this chapter of the Gita. Yoga is a lifestyle. It's not something you add on to your lifestyle. 
if you want to be successful in yoga, but it is a lifestyle. Again, how you sit and your capacity to do so will be determined by how you move. They're not, they're not disconnected, the two. I sit and then I, I you know, go and do something that has nothing to do with sitting. It doesn't help my capacity to sit when it comes time to sit. But if I've conducted myself in my moving phase of life appropriately, then what I'll derive from the sitting will be considerable, considerably more. So it's a lifestyle. Krishna is emphasizing sadhana here, practice. And although yoga, as I say, is a very sophisticated uh, kind of science, if you will, uh, certain things are in place, in other words, you're going to get a certain result, and, and so on, um, for arriving at uh, enlightened life. There must be some, the point of the Gita here in this chapter is, there must be some admixture of bhakti, in order for it to be successful. And in a very generic sense, of course, we can't do anything to be successful unless there's some degree of devotion. And uh, and, and and bhakti means a kind of, uh, uh, it's a giving of the heart. So if your heart's not in it, giving of the heart is a kind of a trans-rational exercise. Sitting, focusing the mind, having the seat not too high, not too low, and being in a solitary place and all these technical arrangements have value and they're all mentioned here. But without the exercise of the heart, which is, which is a, I like to call it a trans-rational exercise, it's, uh, it's reasonable to do so, but in and of itself it's not a, a rational exercise. Then you will not be successful. So Krishna has brought himself into the picture of yoga here, even. He's spoken about Brahman Paramatma, which, according to the Vedanta, aspects of Bhagwan. If reality is by nature joyful, then it must exist and it must be cognitive also. You can have an existence that's not cognitive, but you can't have cog- cognition without existence. You could have a cognitive existence. It wasn't blissful, but you're going to have a blissful. You can't have bliss without awareness of it and without existing. So reality, the Vedanta says, by nature is joyful. Anandamayo bhyasat. The nature of ultimate reality is that there's no uh, there's no reason to it. It's joy. Love knows no reason. So it's moving out of joy only, not to accomplish anything not out of any need and necessity. It's full. Its movements are the movements that result from being full. Celebratory, if you will. This is Leela. It's celebratory. Celebrating the fullness. It's not, a, it's not an any, any lack. And within the context of the drama of the Leela, it may appear that there's some lacking, but there's no lacking there. So the point is, that, is what? That if, if the reality is ultimately... Ananda, joy by nature, then it must exist and it must be cognitive. So there's a joy, there's an aspect of the Absolute that's predominantly joy. There's an aspect that's predominantly cognitive, and an aspect predominantly existential. So Brahman, the existential feature, Paramatma, the cognitive feature, 
Bhagavan, Ananda, and all these things are there in all of them. Existence, Satchit Ananda is in Brahman. Satchit Ananda is in Paramatma. Satchit Ananda is in Bhagavan. But the ratio is somewhat different. The scales are tipped in Bhagavan to Ananda. And therefore, there's, the Absolute has movement and leela and interaction, play. Again, it's not a movement that is based on, for example, a predicament and a debt incurred in, a, in the karmic world and a necessity to move because you've taken, now you have to pay back. No, a movement out of joy. It's a different, it may look similar. Krishna Leela, Krishna's herding cows, dancing with milk maidens, may look like something from this world, but no, it's another thing altogether. Little philosophy required to appreciate that. So, again, the object of yoga sadhana is this paramatma feature. This paramatma doesn't have lila to speak of. It has lila called shrishti lila. Paramatma means the, the cognitive feature of the absolute that presides over the, the world of unknowing, the material world, and knows everything. Vishnu. So, according to yoga sutra, then this ishwar. Ishwar means paramatma. Identification with Ishwar, this is the goal of yoga. Ishwar is an aspect of Bhagwan. Ishwar means presiding over this world, making possible the movements of all souls, sanctioning desires and so on and so forth. He has the leela of manifesting the world out of joy. Lokavatu lilakayavalyam, the world comes into being. The one becomes many, and so we exist. So many individual souls manifest. Then there's the world of inert stuff, matter, and the two interact. And then there becomes a problem. The souls turn on the world, so to speak, but the world turns off the souls. Just like a person turns on the television, but the television may turn him off and turn him into a couch potato, just uh, taken over by the by the television. So... Because with the smallness and size of the jiva, although it's conscious, it can be overwhelmed by matter. Just like a ray of the sun could be overwhelmed by the cloud and appear to be separated from the sun. But the sun is always shining. Fly up high enough, it's always shining there. So the paramatmas, the goal of the yogi, is the feature of the Lord presiding over over this world. And Bhagawan has then... Leela in the parabiyom, on the other side, where there's movement out of joy, not out of necessity, not out of debt incurred. And a successful yogi, then, by identifying with the paramatma, can also go to the parabiyom, because paramatma is coming out of Bhagwan. But he's going to go there in a certain capacity. In the optimum, he's going to go there in passive adoration of the Absolute. This is called Shanta, Shantarasa. It's the optimum. There's another ideal in yoga. The idea is Kaivalyam, oneness with the Ishwar, with the Godhead. So people interpret it differently. But according to Gita, this oneness is a kind of a... Kaivalyam means it's a kind of love. Kaivalyam means oneness, and love is is a oneness, isn't it? If I love you, then we become one. That's Andrew and I, we're one. We're different, but we're one. We're one in spirit. We're one in 
and desire. We're on the same page. We think alike, something like that. Not a static unity that cancels out you and I, but it causes you and I to become a unit of we. And we are one on this. So this is kaivalyam, according to the Bhagwat in the Bhakti tradition. This is the kind of kaivalyam that the yoga should be about also. One with Ishwar, one with the Paramatma, in love, in passive adoration. After all, yoga is about sitting and being still and being quiet, so it's passive adoration. Yoga, we've been discussing, yoga samadhi here, as it's mentioned in Gita. Chitta vritti nirodha. This is yoga's ideal. When the chitta becomes free from vritti, it becomes nirodha. That is samadhi, nirvikal, or uh, asampragyata samadhi. Chitta is a very difficult thing to understand. In, there's no Western word to explain it, but it's something like the organ, if you will, internal organ of perception. We call it mind, we call it heart. These are ways of trying to talk about it. You have to kind of talk about it in yogic terminology, be familiar with that to understand what the term means. So chitta it kind of means like the organ of perception. It's like an ocean. And vritti means waves in the ocean. So that organ of perception, which is material, subtle, but very subtle, the self, which is spiritual, sees and perceives and experiences in this world through the chitta. So this chitta is like an ocean and it, and it has different uh, primary kind of conditions or states, muddha, chipta, vichipta, ekagra, and nirodha, and corresponding vrittis, or like waves in the ocean, pramana, viparyaya, vikalpa, nidra, smriti. These are basic categories of the millions and millions and billions of vrittis that are waves that cause the chitta ocean to be disturbed so that the ref- what's reflected in it and perceived and experienced by the self is a distortion of the actual nature of being. So the yoga idea is to remove the vrittis from the chitta so that it is still and then the image of the world, of reality that's reflected in it will be clear. And in that clearer picture, of course, one sees the paramatma and one identifies with that object, paramatma, with the admixture of bhakti in love. The idea is that through the chitta, we actually see, not through the eyes. Even science will will, will speak about it like that. Some light comes through the eyes and then the image comes, something happens in the brain and then with the brain you're the experience of seeing, it's like a photograph. What we experience according to yoga of the world is really a picture of the world that takes place inside. The picture is the vritti appearing on the chitta and you're seeing, seeing the world. And so they are subtle and they're gross types of vrittis that's uh, from our emotions and from outside influence and so forth. And all this is causing the 
the ocean of the chitta to be disturbed so we can't see. In the yoga of, of bhakti, of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, what does he say? Chitta darpana marshanam. That's the same idea. Chitta darpana marshanam. He says this chitta is like a darpana, like a mirror reflecting, and it should be marshanam, cleansed. Cleansed of what? Of all these vrittis that don't enable you to see the world for what it really is. And to see it for what it is, is to see it all in relation to its proprietor. And the clearer the picture of the proprietor, that depends on the method of approach, what you'll see. Different methods of approach will reveal that picture, the nature of the proprietor to one extent or another. So we've been discussing all these things. Yoga Samadhi means what? That the state of the chitta is not muddha, which means like kind of influenced by the guna, tamaguna. So it makes the mind dull. That's a state, basic state of, of the ocean of the chitta under the influence of brittis. And chitta means in the influence of rajaguna, rajaguna by which we aspire to be to accomplish things in the world and so forth. So vrittis that cause the chitta to be in that kind of state, these are not useful, very useful for yoga. When it becomes vichipta, this chitta, then there's some possibility for trance, to enter in, by yoga practice, to enter into trance and come back out. When it becomes ekagra, in terms of a basic state of the chitta, means focused, the strong influence of sattva, sattva guna, clarity, purity, materially speaking. Then one can concentrate for a long period of time, do dhyan and sampragyata samadhi, savikalpa samadhi. And when it becomes nirodha, then chitta vritti, nirodha. This is yoga. So these things have been discussed to some extent. And Krishna is giving a very nice analysis of astanga yoga up to this point. But because yoga, as a means of connecting with reality, culminates in bhakti and is effective only to the extent that bhakti is factored into it, which is very practical, like I said, if you don't give your heart to it, then what will you get? Just in a very basic sense. Also, you have to understand, I think, that bhakti is otherworldly altogether. Yoga is not necessarily otherworldly. It's a means within this world of trying to take oneself out. But bhakti is otherworldly altogether. You can have gyan. Gyan means knowledge, and knowledge means renunciation. Because if you have knowledge, then you don't chase after things that don't endure. When you're in, your interest is in enduring happiness. So the one who has gyan is, also has bhairagya, detachment. One who doesn't have gyan is running here, there, and everywhere after things. But we also renounce things because they don't satisfy us, even though we return to them sometimes. And we give them up. We return to them. We give them up. Material life is more or less about this. Acquiring things, giving things up when they don't satisfy us. Acquiring things and giving them up. So these are two tracks on which the world, our movement in this world run. To own things possess them and to give them up, to go after things and move away from things. Both of these are world-centered. I want to get the world, I want to get away from the world. 
But bhakti is not world-centered in the same way. Bhakti is about then that what? It's not renunciation, it's not exploitation. It's dedication. And the dedication is otherworldly. It's seeking out the source of the world. And how is it, how is it seeking to find out? I mean, the life's a mystery. It's difficult to understand the world. Science is trying to understand the world by math. What's the problem with that approach? The problem is that math is a language for controlling. And if the world is alive, by chance, <laughs> if it has a life of its own, it's not going to want to be controlled by you or I. Or the, you know, what goes on between, in between the ears of somebody. So there may be another way of approaching the world to understand it. It said, if you love someone, they'll tell you all their secrets. So bhakti is about that, you see. Therefore, its language is poetry, song. These are participatory languages rather than controlling languages. So to participate in the nature of it, play a part in it, not to control it, bring it in like the fist of my intellect and to be on top of it. And This is folly, actually. Maya is a famous word these days. I'm sure everybody's heard of Maya means illusion, but it also means to control. It means to measure. So it, it means that it's folly to measure. That which is infinite cannot be measured. So the whole approach to life to control it, bring it in the fist of my intellect, this is Maya. It will escape you. Some understanding you'll get. And see what understanding you get. You get an understanding that there is no God, there is no soul. Some people come to that conclusion. How deluded they have become then. They will say, well, can you prove otherwise? We say, thing is this. What we're teaching is how to experience this. So if you're willing to participate, take one lifetime. <laughs> That's only one. <laughs> Practice, you can have experience. And if you experience, then you will know. We're not teaching belief about something, hopefully, until you die, and then you'll go there, but to experience it now. We are experiencers. We are consciousness. So the angle of vision from which we view it, this has to be changed. That's all. That's what yoga is about. See, it's a very different, from controlling to participating, these are very different orientations. And to love, to participate, Really, if you want to participate, then some serving is there to facilitate. To, there are others to serve. Serve means to love. So if you love someone, then they'll tell you all their secrets. So if you approach life with love, and love means what? There's then the exploitation has to be taken out, which is causing the karma, right? Because we're taking from the world, because we think we need, because we don't understand what we are. And we're just sinking ourselves further and further into negative numbers, into debt. If we could come to zero, we'd be better off, but there are positive numbers as well. We should go there. That is bhakti, otherworldly. It's otherworldly in a sense, but it also, as a result of being fulfilled in bhakti, then one can participate in this world without exploiting. After all, it's the, the, the actions are not the problem, it's the, the motive that's the problem. 
So with a little bhakti, then this yoga can be... It's a sophisticated method, but without any bhakti, it cannot be successful. But Krishna's been speaking about it, and because the Gita is ultimately about bhakti. After all, it's Bhagwan speaking to a bhakta, Krishna speaking to Arjuna, so the subject must be bhakti. He's talking about yoga to look at it in relation to bhakti, and he's saying yoga will be successful, as sophisticated as it is, if there's bhakti. Without any bhakti, it won't be successful. So as he's speaking about it, he's starting now to move, as it comes towards the end of the chapter, in the direction of bhakti proper itself. Bhakti yoga. It's a yoga. So there's a, some emotion that will come here. Krishna is about bhakti. He's bhaktavatsala. He says, yoginam hridayeshu va naham vaikunta tishtami yoginam hridayeshu va he says, I'm not in Vaikuntha, the power of Yoma. I'm not in the hearts of the yogis. But uh, Madhbhakta Gayanti, wherever my devotees are chanting my name, I'm there. What's in a name? So much. Right? Now it's your social security number. So if I know your social security number, then I have, your, I have everything. I have your bank balance, your, your whole identity. So people say, did you get his name? If you had his name, then you can capture him, something like that. So name of Krishna, this is very powerful. Sadhana, to take the name of Krishna, Kirtan. Kirtan is very, very extraordinary type of yoga because even without sitting, one can taste samadhi. <laughs> Kirtana prabhave, smarana svabhave. If you want smarana, this is yoga, meditation. Smarana means meditation. Dhyan, samadhi. Druvanu Smriti, Chitta, Vritti, Nirodha, and more, to arrest the mind. You want that. This Kirtan is very powerful means. Most powerful. There's no prerequisite to engage in Kirtan. There are prerequisites for yoga. So Bhakti is generous also. This Kirtan is a major anga or limb of Bhakti. It's very generous. Isn't it? It, it goes to people even if they're not interested in yoga, even if they're not human beings, <laughs> it goes to them. Bhakti, very generous, can take us very high at the same time. Very high and very broad in its outreach. Very, very generous. This name, Nam, and Kirtan, there's, a, there's this nice story of how two policemen in India, I've told before, they were having a conversation and one said to the other, you know, <sighs> such a problem that our God is a thief. We're referring to Krishna who would steal yogurt and milk and things from neighbors and, and so forth. And the other policeman said, the first guy said, I mean, we're trying to teach people not to steal and our God's a thief. It's, it's difficult. And um, the other one said, no, that's not a problem at all. That's a, that's a good thing that our God is a thief. He said, why is that? Because he said, a thief doesn't care for high walls and locked doors. He goes anyway. And in the form of the Nam, Krishna, he goes everywhere. And the doors that are closed and locked, that's what we've put around our heart. We're protecting ourselves there. We don't want... But the name goes there anyway. It comes from the heart. It manifests in the heart of a sadhu. And then it stirs up some feeling and has to come onto the tongue and dance and then it goes into your ear and into your heart and this way it goes on 
mystically, invisibly, people don't know they're participating in yoga. Next thing you know, they find themselves interested in this, coming to hear about it, talk about it, and so forth. They don't know why. They have come up with some reason, but there's a deeper reason. This sukriti is being created by Nam. So the bhakti very, very generous. She blesses yoga. She blesses jnana, that they might be successful paths towards transcendence. And she herself is a path as well. That is a means and ends in one. So bhakti for bhakti's sake. So Krishna is speaking about yoga. He's coming to the end of the whole yoga psychology and he's going to go into the theology. He starts talking about himself. He said, the yogi should fix his mind on me. So I'm going to read a couple of verses here. He's reaching the end of his yoga discourse and his mind, Krishna, is going in the direction of bhakti, the full face of yoga. He's gone so far in talking about yoga, the successful yogi, with some admixture of bhakti, will have kaivalya with my paramatma. He can rise to the height of shantarasa, aesthetic rapture and passive adoration in eternality of the absolute. They're not small things, but there are other possibilities within transcendence of intimacy with Bhagwan. He wants to talk about this with Arjun, that all the possibilities will be laid be placed before him and he can make a wise decision, Arjun. What path to pursue? So Krishna says that here, he says, sarvabhutastam atmanam sarvabhutani chatmani ikshite yoga yuktatma Sarvatra Samadarshana. He who is disciplined in yoga sees the Supreme Self existing in all beings and all beings existing in the Supreme Self. He sees equally at all times. Previously, speaking specifically about Astanga Yoga, Krishna spoke about equality of vision of the yogi. He said he sees a piece of a rock and a piece of gold as the same. He's talked about seeing equally in terms of inanimate objects. And then he went higher, he said, in terms of animates, of seeing a friend and enemy as equal. That's even more developed. Now he's moving in the direction of Shantaras and Bhakti. He's talking about equality of vision here. What does he say? That superlative yogi, this is how he sees equal vision. He sees God in everything everything in God. It's taking on a little bit of a theistic uh, color. Then he will say, he wants to go further, he says, I, he says, he will see the Supreme Self in everything, and everything in the Supreme Self. This is very nice poetry here, he says, Yomam pasyati sarvatra sarvam cha mai pasyati tasyaham na pranashami sa Pranashati. He says, I am never lost to one who sees me everywhere and sees all things in me, nor is such a person ever lost to me. So he's, this is Krishna speaking now, personally about himself to Arjuna, about where yoga can lead to, what type of intimacy it can lead to, what is the equanimity of vision of the yogi in bhakti. He's seeing God everywhere, everything in relation to God. He says, 
That yogi who worships me in oneness of understanding, that it is I who am situated in all beings, lives in me, regardless of how he acts. The yogi who measures the pain and pleasure of others as if it were his own Arjun is considered the best of all. Now Arjun will ask some questions, but these are important verses and they, as I say, they're moving the, the direction of the talk towards bhakti, shuddha bhakti, bhakti unto itself, bhakti yoga. This chapter will end on that note entirely, Krishna will say. Best to be a yogi, and of all yogis, one of my devotees, that is the best kind of yogi. So how is he talking about bhakti here? Again, he's invoking himself. He sees me in everything, everything in me. There are nice examples of this. He makes a nice point here, too. He says that that yogi who sees me everywhere and everything in me, I am never lost to him, he is never lost to me. And he lives in this regardless of how he acts. In the beginning of this chapter, action was mentioned, and how one acts was very important. Now we're in the stream end culmination of yoga. And, our, and Krishna says, regardless of how he acts, he will explain this further in the ninth chapter. These gopis, they are the, the highest kind of devotees because if the degree to which intimacy with the Absolute is afforded in transcendence is the criteria by which we evaluate with a, some objectivity, the subjective reality of perfection of different perfected souls, these gopis set a particular standard of intimacy with the Absolute. Krishna actually means that manifestation of the Absolute, it's very hard that for the sake of, here we are finite souls, and we're off to, to embrace the infinite. It's, it's a staggering kind of idea. We want to get close to the infinite, but the closer we get to the infinite, the more we feel how finite we are. And we say, oh my God. And we have to kind of push back in reverence and awe and, oh my God. The closer you get to the infinite, if you're a finite being, the more you realize, oh, how small you are. Or infinitesimal, let's say. What it means to be infinitesimal. We don't see ourselves through that lens. We kind of think we're rather big. But, uh, the world of our mind in which we live is very, very small, actually. So if the idea is we are to have intimacy with the infinite, the infinite will have to take on a form or an appearance that's finite-like in order that the intimacy can be afforded. That is Krishna, human-like. He's not appearing overtly reverential. He's uh, a young boy playing a flute, herding cows. And you think, this is a god? This is the supreme manifestation of the Godhead? He's very ordinary looking. As Shiva is in meditation. He's obviously got powers. We think, this is God. He's got power. He doesn't have any possessions. Sitting naked. His dress is ash only. Just see his power. 
some Aishwarya, some opulence. So, yeah, he's got, he doesn't eat necessarily. He can just sit in trance for a long time. Wow, we're wowed by that. And for good reason. Krishna, he's chasing after Radha. Does she love me? Does she love me? He seems to be in a predicament. His mother is chasing him, chastising him for stealing yogurt. What is all this? <laughs> His associates are very attached to him and to the requisite paraphernalia associated with him, the cows, their place, Vrindavan. So they never leave Vrindavan. It's a small village. They never leave their small village and, and see the big world. They're very provincial, uneducated people, cow people. They're just taking cows in the jungle, herding cows. So it's difficult for us to understand how, how, why will you think this is the supreme manifestation of divinity? In fact, it looks quite ordinary. This is somewhat about something about the idea of that. It's a finite-like appearance that the Absolute takes for the sake of intimacy. And those gopis, those milkmaidens, they're not ordinary people. They're extraordinary yogis. To be in that lila and forget, ostensibly, that they're in association with the infinite and have feelings of romantic love, if you will, for the absolute, something like that, with the intensity, I should say, of romantic love that's you know possesses you so much in this world. They're so possessed. Here, yogis are being taught by Krishna how to fix their mind on him by a very sophisticated method. Radharani is trying to get Krishna off of her mind, and she can't. What kind of yoga is that? Radha's yoga. Do you understand? She's so upset with him in the lila, the context of the lila and the romantic life. She's trying to get him off of her mind. I don't want to think about him ever again. He went with another gopi when he was supposed to rendezvous with me. I've been told I never want to think about him again. And Krishna wants to see that kind of jealous love. He's attracted by that. Then he has to come beg to get admittance into her quarters again. This is very hard to understand. A religious idea, spiritual idea even. What is lila? Drama. Of the absolute, yes, Krishna is stealing in a, in a drama, but it's a drama. If he who owns everything steals, what do we call that? That is play, then. No criminality there. Everything belongs to him. With all his shakti, but Bhagwan means the absolute interacting with shakti. Shakti makes for lila. Radha is fueling the lila, making it go round. Radha is a manifestation of Krishna by which he looks at himself through eyes that he he can better understand himself. Sugar can't taste itself, but it's sweet. Krishna is sweet, but he manifests as Radha. And Radha is the pinnacle of devotion, of bhakti. She bhakti devi. So all this bhakti is coming from Radha. And through bhakti, Krishna is tasting himself in lila. Here the, the Absolute has taken a finite-like appearance so that there can be intimacy. Powerful? Shiva looks powerful. Krishna is just playing a flute. But we should consider that it takes power to play. If you want to play, to take a vacation, you have to have some power, some money in the bank. You have to have worked, acquired some power, and then you can play. You can take time off. So he was depicted by the mystics as only playing. See? It's all power. 
nothing to attain. And who is Shiva meditating on? Ah, that should be considered. Very <laughs> study carefully. See, Shiva has object of meditation also. It's not just some empty void. He's meditating on, on Sankarshan Ram. Ram, Krishna means. This is object of meditation from which he derives his power. Of course, he's a manifestation of Krishna. But there's something to be learned from that. No, so this Krishna that is powerful, most powerful, and most powerful how? Also, attractive. The Leela of Krishna is very charming, very attractive, very user-friendly to hear about that. The book very easily capture your mind. It's so close to the human heart. If we look closely at the human heart and understand something about love psychology by which we're moving in this world, then we can understand something about the Absolute also. Is the Absolute just still? No movement? Or is, is it more alive and loving than ourselves? No, what, what we sense reality is about, fulfillment is about in human life, which is love. And we're all moving for the sake of finding love. That's what we're moving for. And when we find love, we can rest, only to start to move again under the influence of love in a very different way. I'm just giving a material example. When you move in the, we're moving in the world and looking for a relationship. My space, you know, whatever. Has anybody checked my place? You know, come to my space and, and, uh, you know, you've got a cell phone and you've got a whatever, iPhone and a MySpace and a really other thing, Facebook and ways that people, I can find someone, find a relationship, something like that. For the most part, life is moving for this. And that movement in pursuit of the relationship is a kind of neediness. When you find it, then you're moving out of fullness. Now you're moving, now you feel comfortable wherever you are. Just using a material example, but this is much of what life is, human life is about. If we look carefully at it, should our spirituality invalidate that whole thing and tell us this is a folly? And it does to an extent, yes. After all, when you find him or her, they may transform right in front of you and turn into something other than what you thought they were. <laughs> That's problematic. And ultimately they disappear. And so do you, as you know yourself. So, should we pursue this love at all? That's the whole problem. Come to knowledge. Understand the temporary nature of names and forms in this world. Stop chasing after love. Come to knowledge. Be sober. With knowledge of Vedanta and yoga, we can dismantle the whole world and see it for what it is. Then we can sit still and not have to move anymore. Full with that understanding. But this is kind of invalidates what our sense as a human is that life's about. We have a sense that there's some, there's more than knowing. And that loving is the real knowing. So we keep chasing after it. We say, I know, but. I know, but. <laughs> Talk to you later. I'm going <laughs> after it again. So we're pursuing this. Yoga, of course, is meant to stop us from the false pursuit of it. But the full face of yoga will validate it, that pursuit nonetheless and say, yes, it can be found. Ultimate reality is not simply about sitting still. And knowing, it's about loving. And it's about a relationship also. It's about oneness. It's about 
about difference too, both of them, and harmonizing them both. Love is a oneness in which difference is, becomes beautiful rather than a problem. If I'm one with you in love, then your differences become, my differences become yours, your differences become mine, right? We still keep them. In other words, my preferences, they become yours. You want to do what I want, and I want to do what you want. So those preferences, those differences are preserved, but not in such a way that they, they're conflicting. It's I make yours mine, you make mine yours. This is love. We can't really do that fully in this life, in material life, because the very object to which we're directing our loving propensity is one that's here today and gone tomorrow. So it's problematic. But should the whole pursuit be considered invalid altogether? This invalidates the human experience. And the human experience, if it comes from the absolute, if it's the effect coming from the cause, then what's in the cause will show up in the effect. So where is this loving pursuit coming from then? If it's just to be done away with, sit in silence and there's no one else there, Om, alone, Om, alone. <laughs> I'm full, there's nobody chasing me and I'm not chasing anybody either. I'm feeling pretty good right now. You can do that even if you can say, I'm tired of these relationships and you can start to feel whole, right? It happens. Speaking, materially speaking, so that can be extrapolated also further into the absolute. So there's a plane of absolute or transcendent experience of aloneness. But bhakti is not about that. And you can't even get alone in that sense, without a little bhakti. And being alone is satisfying, full, and a relief. And bhakti got you a little more bhakti. And you're going on the other side now. You're finding the real, the proper center towards which, in which we can repose our loving propensity. And we're possessed of as such. We have a propensity to love. We're a unit, after all, of giving capacity. That's what we are. What are we? We are whatever we give ourselves to. That's what we are. We have a capacity as a soul to give. A unit of will, so we can will, however minutely, and that we invest ourselves. Whatever we invest ourselves in, whatever we give ourselves to, that we become, in a sense, materially speaking. So we, we, we are our attachments, our desires. The whole identity arises out of our attachments. So we should do away with the attachments. But then what will we be? Will we be nothing? <laughs> Some people would reason like that. But in the bhakti school, the idea is what? That we repose our giving capacity, our very being, in the proper center. This is the idea of Krishna, who can take. Krishna is depicted by the yogis, by the devotees, as an enjoyer. People go, what? I don't know, I'm reading the Gita, it's sounding good, and then this guy starts talking about himself in there. It's me, it's, well, it's me, it's me. I don't know if I want to be, you know, I like this guy. It's sound, starting to sound like, really, like there's a, you know, I'm going to be part of a despotic, you know, a, he's a despot, a dictator. I'm not sure if I... It sounds very egotistical. 
you start to get into the, the we're starting to go in that direction of the theology of the Gita. Krishna will talk about himself more and more. Everything belongs to me. So if sometimes people read it, they start to get a little off-putting. It sounds egotistic. I thought we were supposed to give up the ego. You are. We are supposed to sacrifice and give. But where are we going to give? Is there no enjoying end of the equation? If there's giver, there has to be a taker. Right? And because the taker is appropriately so, there is a center. Then when you give to that center, when that center says, give to me, give to me, give to me, give to me, it's not like when you say, give to me. If my hand says, give to me, give to me, don't give the food to the stomach, give it to me. That will be inappropriate. But the stomach says, give it to me, give it to me. That will be appropriate because once it goes to the stomach, what will happen? The stomach will transform the food in a way that the hand cannot and it will be distributed to every part of the body. So the stomach has to speak up and say, give it to me, give it to me, I'm the center. Give it to me. So Krishna says, give it to me, give it to me. He's the enjoying end. We're on the sacrificing end. And he's attracted to the sacrificing end. He's actually this is a secret also. He's conquered by that, that love, the love of his devotees. That's why Krishna becomes in their palm of their hand. That's what it means that Krishna becomes the devotee's friend, lover, child. He places himself at their disposal. Such is the power of bhakti. So Krishna's going in this direction here. He's talked about yoga samadhi. He's furthering that, but he's coloring it now with bhakti and shuddha bhakti. Look at the Brajagopikas, the milkmaidens of, of Krishna's Leela in Vrindavan. They are being depicted by these statements that we read. They see Krishna everywhere. Krishna disappeared from the dan- rasa dance and the full moon night. And then they went looking for him everywhere. Everywhere they spoke to the trees, to the earth, to the moon. They were seeing their own bhava, their own ecstasy, their own reality in all of these inanimate objects, bowing down to them, respecting them, means they were seeing Krishna everywhere. They were seeing love of Krishna everywhere, except in themselves, they thought. We have no love. Why has Krishna disappeared? And Krishna's watching them constantly, amazed by their love, the measure of it. And in the end he comes out and says, I'm purchased by you, just see. I thought I was a connoisseur of love, but the measure of your love, I cannot, I don't know. I want to become a devotee so that I might experience myself. So this is the direction he's going. He's getting a little emotional. We pause for a moment and Arjuna will ask some questions. We'll hear about them tonight. Any questions at the moment? Yes, very well. Yesterday you explained about you explained the terms uh, samprajyata and samprajyata samadhi. When the gopis, after Krishna left during the, before the Vasudevas, and they, they looked for him, and at one point they started imitating his leelas. And could this be said to be one kind of asamprajyata? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it basically means completely stepping outside of oneself and entirely identifying with the object. To the extent that you're identifying with it, you don't even realize it. You're not aware of identifying with it. It's a kind of a oneness. 
another question? Yes. Uh, sometimes people, when, when we speak, or, or when you speak about uh, how uh, bhakti validates this human experience of looking for life and so forth, sometimes people will say that, that this is just anthropomorphism. How would you reply to such a... That's an interesting topic, but uh, the texts say, like if you take a, a Christian perspective, it, their sacred text says that humans are made in the image of God, right? So if you want to say that their form of revelation is merely a human projection, then you do away with the whole concept of revelation in the first place. So either you're going to accept that there's a principle of revelation and the possibility of that or not. If you don't, then the whole idea of God is anthropomorphism and so forth. And in the sacred text of the Hindus, you have the idea that one becomes many, Vishnu becomes many for the Shristi Lila. So it's the same principle then. This one becomes many, they are in finite, infinitesimal, stamped with the same sensibilities in respects, but a small image of the whole. So this is what the revelation tells us. And then anthropomorphism, anthropocentrism, you know, the human-centric worldview. I mean, what could be more anthropocentric than some of the modern or postmodern outlooks on life? Postmodernism is about as anthropocentric as you could possibly get. It says reality is just the subjective experience of each individual, the human being, right, and totally in the center of, of ultimate reality. Well, there is no ultimate reality, so... But it's very, it's, it's a very, uh, so um, I guess it's hard for humans to get away from anthropocentrism. <laughs> so, and so your question was exactly, what, how did you phrase it again? That uh, speaking about God in this, or, or spiritual life in terms of... Human heart and... Yeah. 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 Well, again, I think that humanity is the most complex form of life. It's considered, biologically speaking, to be the most evolved form of life. And so it stands to reason by that kind of logic that the most evolved form of life will tell us the most about the nature of reality. And if there's a more evolved, if you will, you know, form of life, if there's a supernatural, let's say, if, the, as, as there's, if there's a divine, then why would not the most evolved form of life in the world speak more closely about the nature of that? In other words, according to the Hindu scriptures, the closest thing to God in this world is what? Is us, meaning the soul. The unit of consciousness that we're constituted of is the closest thing in this world which most resembles God, because God is consciousness, and alive, not inanimate, and so forth. So things, material things, don't resemble God to the same extent that we do. That which is experienced doesn't resemble God as much as that which experiences. We are experiencers. So the Upanishads teach us, you, yourself, 
are the closest thing to God. And that self that we're constituted of, that is life, according to the sacred texts, is most visible and more fully expressed in the human condition than any other condition of life. In other words, souls are life, so the tree has a soul, the bird has a soul, so what a human life is a particular vehicle that allows the soul to unit of consciousness to be further expressed, to express itself. It's coming out from underneath the covering of matter. So it's evolved spiritually. It's evolved biologically. We would say it's evolved spiritually as well, the human form of life. Therefore, we can do sadhana. We, we can pursue God consciousness and so forth in ways that less complex forms of life will not be able to until the soul's transmigrate and come to a human form of life. So in the human form of life, then, which is the most evolved state of conditioned consciousness, we're going to find the most about divine consciousness, because it's closest to it. This is the idea. So it's, it's human-centric ideas, not as all as bad as it's kind of made out to be sometimes. They want to say by anthropomorphism or anthropocentrism, we're just projecting our humanity. And yeah, our humanity does speak to us about the nature. It speaks about the nature of the world more so than some of the less complex forms of life. Because the world has emotions. It's part of life, right? Feeling and, uh, and so forth. The humans are very different than all the other species that they're sometimes thought to have evolved from, biologically speaking. And they tell us more about life, what possibilities there are to be experienced. And of course, again, as I began, we, we, our view on humanity is colored by, by revelation, by the words of the mystics coming from the other side, or from the sacred texts and so forth. So it's really not human-centric, it's God-centric. If you want to say, well, they, they made, humans made all that up, so it's human-centric, then you have to look at the yoga process and see how, how kind of non-human it is how it moves in the opposite direction of the way human, what the perpetuation of human consciousness would, would mandate. It moves in the opposite direction. To perpetuate human consciousness is to enjoy and to take and go on with the, with the world. Yoga is moving in an opposite way. Instead of taking, it's moving away from taking and giving, moving away from exploitation. It's a very sophisticated system yoga, any spiritual discipline, it's very objective. And what it asks us to do is to operate on ourselves. Science prides itself in being objective. And it looks at religion and spirituality as being subjective and, and says, therefore, it can't get a clear picture of the nature of, of what's uh, taking place. But, but really, there's quite a bit of objectivity to spiritual practice. In other words, let's say, if I'm attached to something, let's say I'm attached to my paycheck, and I'm a scientist. I might report certain data more readily than others because the boss wants that kind of data. Right? That happens. I've been paid by somebody to do research, and they want a result. And there might be ways in which I could make the result happen a little better than the data says, and, and, and I could succumb to that. And uh, 
due to attachments. So you find me the scientist who is detached, who doesn't need a paycheck. Some are better than others, obviously, than the more. But find that being. Yoga is a system. Vedanta and spiritual practice are a system for a radical system for becoming detached. Very radical. Heavy. It's very radical, and it will bring there for objectivity, a clear picture of what's going on. So we ask you, you know, come experiment on yourself. How much are you paid for? How much are you lacking in objectivity? That will depend upon the measure of your attachments. That will color your vision. Here's a radical discipline for overcoming all attachments. It should provide. A very objective picture of the nature of being and reality. You know, they want to analyze this, the condition of the mystic without going there. If they go there, then they'll become a yogi. They'll go after that. They'll want to come back again and again and again if they get a little experience. Such is the nature of that. So, we'll stop there. Simad Bhagavad Gita ki jai.